Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode nineteen of Intermediate English with me, Benjamin. This is our last episode of the year. After this, I'm going to be taking a few weeks off from the podcast, so the next episode will be in January, twenty twenty-one. Last time we started our exploration of the British monarchy, looking at the twists and turns in the story up until the year 1900. If you haven't listened to part one, the previous episode, I'd recommend you listen to that first. At the end of our last episode, we were in 1900. Almost at the end of a 63-year reign by Queen Victoria, the monarchy seemed strong. Unlike most of continental Europe, Britain had not had its monarchy abolished, replaced, or restored during the Napoleonic Wars in the early 1800s. The royal family in 1900 could trace its lineage all the way back to William the Conqueror, who became king in 1066. And except for eleven years in the 1600s, this family had ruled Britain uninterrupted. But around 1900, politics was starting to move in a new direction. More and more people had the right to vote. Yes, at this stage it was still only men, but nevertheless, for twenty years. The majority of men in the country had been able to vote. Voting was starting to be seen as a right rather than something that only the rich and the wealthy were allowed to do. This meant that ordinary people could vote for their representatives in Parliament, but they still couldn't vote for their head of state. Unlike, for example, the citizens of neighboring France. Republicanism, the belief in ending the monarchy, started to become more popular in Britain, particularly in the new Labour Party, which was starting to win more and more votes in Parliament and become a serious political force. The founder of the Labour Party was a Republican, and he believed in ending the monarchy. The party was in favour of democratic government. It was hard to see. How democracy could be achieved when you can't vote for your head of state. In the early part of the twentieth century, there were other complications for the royal family. In 1914, Britain entered the First World War, allying with Russia and France against Germany and Austria-Hungary. The next four years were one of the most bitter conflicts in human history. With around twenty million killed, and a further twenty million wounded, this was an event that changed so many aspects of life around the world. In Britain, and much of Europe, the end of the war brought huge changes: voting rights for women, more support from the state for the old and the vulnerable. Why would this affect? The British royal family. Well, it was an issue because one major effect of the war was that it increased anti-German hatred. In fact, 
racism against Germans was so fierce during the First World War that German businesses were often attacked and German shops were destroyed. German families were persecuted. The problem for the royal family was that they were German. The family traced its lineage back to the House of Hanover, a dynasty from northern Germany. And then, more recently, Queen Victoria had married a German prince, Prince Albert, meaning that their children were born with the surname Saxe-Coburg und Gotha. This was a real problem for the royal family, because they were perceived as German during a time of considerable anti-German racism. Their own familial links to the German royal family were also a problem. George V was a cousin of the German emperor. The anti-German public sentiment was so strong that the king and his advisers began to worry that the public would begin to demand an end to the monarchy. The king's advisor, however, had a clever solution to this problem. The royal family would take a radical step by changing its image and losing its German appearance. It would change its name to Windsor, named after Windsor Castle, one of the most important royal palaces, and not far from London. In 1917, George V created the Windsor dynasty, giving the royal family a new identity and a fresh start. The royal family had been rebranded in the same way that products, companies, political parties need rebranding every now and then. But this didn't mean that the difficult times were behind them. In 1936, there was a crisis in the royal family. King Edward VIII had only been king for a few months, and at the age of 42, he was still unmarried. This was very unconventional at the time, especially in the royal family. What happened next shocked the nation. Edward proposed to a divorced woman, Wallace Simpson. What was so controversial about this? Well, social attitudes were very different in the 1930s for a start. It was considered unacceptable for the king to be married to a divorcee, a divorced woman. Secondly, the king was also the head of the Church of England, the Anglican Church, which had been founded by Henry VIII back in the 1530s, something we talked about in the last episode. At that time, the Anglican Church opposed divorce. It wouldn't have been possible for the king to fulfil his role as the head of the Church of England and also be married to a divorced woman. Additionally, the government was threatening to resign if Edward married Wallace Simpson. His response was to abdicate the throne. He became the fourth English monarch to abdicate since 1066, and the only one since James II abdicated back in 1688. 
After his abdication, at the end of 1936, Edward visited Germany with Wallace Simpson, who is now his wife. During the Second World War, which began three years later, Edward volunteered to fight in the British Army, but it was well known that he was a Nazi sympathiser. He had sympathy for the views of the Nazis. So instead, he was made governor of the Bahamas, a job which was given to him to keep him out of the country and to keep him out of trouble. As in other languages, in English we often name periods after our monarchs. For example, when Henry VIII was king, we can talk about the Henrician period. When James I or James II were king, we can talk about the Jacobean period. When Mary was queen, we call it the Marian period. And at the moment, the queen is Elizabeth which means that we can call it the Elizabethan period. Well, we've already had one monarch called Elizabeth in the 1500s and early 1600s. So this is really the second Elizabethan era in Britain. It's extraordinary for a number of reasons. It's the longest reign in British history. In fact, Elizabeth II is the fourth longest reigning monarch of a sovereign state in world history, and if she reigns for another four years, she'll make her way to the top of that list. In many ways, this has been a period of stability in the monarchy. The monarchy plays less of a role in everyday lives of British people. Queen Elizabeth has worked hard to keep the monarchy out of politics, to make it appear ceremonial, to make it more like the monarchy in other countries. It's been a time in which the family could shape their image positively. The royal family could choose how and when to engage with the public. At the start of her reign, the British Empire was at its height, and the royal family made high-profile tours of their dominions, the countries which were part of the British Empire. Just before her reign began, there was the 1947 royal visit to South Africa, a great opportunity for the royal family to show off in front of the cameras and particularly to put Princess Elizabeth in front of the cameras. She would become queen only five years later. The royal family has such a carefully crafted image that it's able to play an important and positive role in the international perception of Britain. If you wander around London, you will see shops that are full of royal family souvenirs. If you go to Madame Tussauds, the museum full of waxworks, you can get your photo taken next to a waxwork figure of the Queen and the whole royal family. In other words, the royal family does play a role in tourists' perceptions of Britain and perhaps might be the reason why some of those tourists even thought of coming to Britain. The royal family 
has a, a close link to the international perception of Britain. And I've noticed that when I spend time in other countries, it plays a big role in the discussion of Britain, far more than for other monarchies, such as, for example, Norway or Spain. But there is another side to this story as well. In many ways, this second Elizabethan era has been full of complications and change. In 1952, when Elizabeth was crowned queen, it was a very different world. One big difference is how people found out about the royal family, how people learnt about it and engaged with it. Back then in the 1950s, people read newspapers and listened to the radio but very few people owned TVs. Over the Elizabethan era, television ownership has grown, interest in other people's lives has increased, and the family, the royal family, started to take advantage of this. They started to use this. Perhaps the best example of this is from 1969, when the documentary royal family was produced. The idea for this came from the press secretary for the royal family. He thought that making a documentary about the royal family would increase interest in them and lead to positive changes in their image. The film showed the royal family doing normal things, eating breakfast together, watching television, having barbecues, enjoying normal life. One scene showed the Queen going into a shop to buy an ice cream for her son, Prince Edward. The documentary was seen by 30 million people in Britain, more than half of the population. It was also broadcast in Australia and the USA to huge audiences. The documentary led to a huge shift in attitudes, a big change in attitudes. The royal family was starting to become demystified. The mystery surrounding the royal family was beginning to disappear. You might think that this was very positive for the monarchy. You might think that modernization, making the royal family more modern, was what it needed. And that might be true. But the way it was done with this film really opened the floodgates, as we say. It really allowed people in and it started to create this very close media attention to the royal family that has continued up until today. Ever since the monarchy started to play less of a role in politics in the 1700s. It continued to have complications, difficulties, disasters. But there was one big difference in the 20th century. These disasters were more visible and more reported. Since the 1970s, and perhaps since this documentary, Royal Family in 1969, the life of the royal family has been extensively reported 
and has become well known around the globe. The personal lives of the royal family became front-page news stories. This became particularly significant in the 1980s and 1990s. During this period, the heir to the throne, Prince Charles, had a complicated private life. His marriage to Diana Spencer failed at the end of the 1980s. He resumed an extramarital affair, an affair outside of his marriage with his former girlfriend, Camilla Parker Bowles, and Diana began an affair of her own. The couple separated in 1992. In the 1990s, Diana did a number of high-profile TV interviews in which she talked about the psychological effect of Prince Charles's affairs. She said that there were three of them in their marriage. She questioned whether Charles would be a suitable king. Diana was a serious problem for the royal family. Her candidness, her openness, her honesty about her experiences made the royal family look bad, and it embarrassed them a lot. The problem was worsened by the fact that Diana was by far the most popular member of the royal family. The openness that the family had invited with their documentary in 1969, this openness had created so much interest in the family that they had to be experts at playing the media game. Well, Diana was an expert at this. Just as her life had shaped the British monarchy, so too did her death. The death of Princess Diana in a car crash in 1997 led to a moment of national mourning, of national grief, an event which had a huge impact on British society. The funeral was broadcast around the world. Memorials to Diana were put up around Britain and around the world, also in Hungary, Canada, the USA, many other countries. This just goes to show what a significant impact she had on the British monarchy and how it was seen across the world. In some ways, the British monarchy is full of contradictions. Britain today is a country that is deeply proud of its democratic history. It's a country that likes to believe that the British Parliament was the first great democratic institution in the world. And yet, Britain is a country without a written constitution, with an unelected monarchy, one that plays an important role in public life. The fact that it still exists is hard to explain to you. I've tried to show that the key to its survival has been adaptation, the way that the monarchy has changed to reflect the times. But there are other reasons why the monarchy remains and has stayed popular. 
Despite everything we've discussed about its turbulent history, the monarchy does continue to project an image of Britain, which is stable and traditional. Visit Britain, which is the British Tourism Authority, claims that the monarchy brings £500 million in revenue to Britain each year. The monarchy has given a lot of its powers to democratic institutions as well, like Parliament. The Prime Minister plays a similar role to that of a president in another country. And the Prime Minister can make major decisions without needing to consult the Queen. Some other positives. Some members of the royal family have played important roles as ambassadors for Britain. Not only in a formal way, but rather more informally representing British interests. For example, the Queen's third child, Prince Andrew, had a role as the UK's trade envoy until 2011. The Queen's daughter, Prince Anne, has spent much of her life working with charities in the UK and around the world. Yet, as democracy has grown and the monarchy has had its ups and downs over the past century, the calls for abolition have increased. The calls to end the monarchy have increased. There's no doubt that today support for abolition is a minority belief. More people support the monarchy continuing than oppose it. Popular support for republicanism, this belief in ending the monarchy, tends to go up and down. It fluctuates between around 15 and 30% of the population. In Parliament, none of the major political parties supports republicanism, although there are MPs, members of Parliament, from a number of parties who are republicans. Republicans argue that the negative aspects of the monarchy outweigh the positive aspects, that there are more negatives than positives. They believe that the monarchy is outdated, it's too old-fashioned for our times, and it should be abolished. They would point out that the monarchy costs Britain about £345 million a year, money which could be spent on other things. But even if it was free, Republicans argue, the monarchy should still be abolished. Some Republicans have attacked the idea that the royal family works hard to develop British interests. One calculation suggested that Prince Charles, considered to be the hardest working royal, does the equivalent of about 74 days of work per year, unlike the average full-time worker in Britain who does 240 days of work per year. Republicans also challenge the idea that the royal family is good for tourism. Remember that figure I quoted a few minutes ago, that the royal family brings £500 million in tourism each year? Well, the total income from tourism in Britain is £127 billion each year. So, if you do the maths on that, the royal family account for only 0.3%. 
And royal palaces are not actually that popular for tourists. Buckingham Palace is the 69th most popular tourist attraction in the UK. Windsor Castle does better, it's at number 18, but it's still behind Kew Gardens, Edinburgh Castle, Chester Zoo. And the question is, if the monarchy was abolished, would people stop visiting these places? Could you imagine that? Well, you can. Do people still visit the Palace of Versailles in France, even though there's no monarchy in France? Finally, the monarchy plays an important part in the politics of the UK and the other 15 states around the world where the Queen is the head of state. And perhaps it plays more of an important role than we think. How is that possible, considering we have a prime minister who takes all the major decisions in the country? Well, firstly, the Queen meets with the Prime Minister once a week. The meetings are private, they are unrecorded, and so the Queen has a huge amount of access, something that we call lobbying, the ability to influence people in power. And even if she were to not take advantage of that lobbying power, it doesn't mean that her son won't, or grandson, or any of her descendants. Secondly, even if prime ministers have a lot of power in our democratic system, we don't vote for our prime ministers. We vote for a party. As a result, the UK has had 14 prime ministers who never campaigned in a general election, something that probably sounds quite surprising to someone from another democratic country. For example, in 2007, Gordon Brown became prime minister when the previous prime minister, Tony Blair, resigned. There was no general election, and Gordon Brown was elected by the members of parliament from his party. In 2015, the same thing happened again. Prime Minister David Cameron resigned and Theresa May became the new Prime Minister, elected not by the British people, but by her party in Parliament. If our current Prime Minister resigned tomorrow, the British people would not get to choose the next one. And all of that is because we don't have a president. Does that seem democratic to you? does this leave us? The future of the monarchy doesn't seem to be under threat at the moment, as republicanism is still a minority point of view in Britain. Republicanism is more popular in some other parts of the Commonwealth, but it's not popular enough yet to become a major part of any British political party's programme. The question that I would want to ask British people is this one. If we had to invent our political system, we didn't just inherit it, but if we could create a new political system that we could all agree with 
and that represented us, would we create the one that we already have? Or would we create a system with an elected head of state? I think the monarchy is such an ancient institution in Britain that the British people find it hard to imagine moving away from it. I hope you've enjoyed these two episodes on the British monarchy. There is so much more that we could have explored. If you would like to find out more about British history, I'd be delighted to hear any suggestions you have for particular topics. I have a few in mind. If you'd like to find out more about the arguments against the monarchy, you could look at the website of Republic, the biggest organisation campaigning for republicanism in the UK. Well, that's it from me for 2020. Over the past six months, it's been great to see the audience for Intermediate English grow and grow. It's always lovely to receive your feedback and your comments, so if you want to get in touch, or if you have any questions, or you just want to practice your written English or spoken English, you can send me an email at intermediatepods at gmail.com. I'm going to take a few weeks off from the podcast now, so you'll hear from me again in early mid-January. Have a great time, whatever you're doing. Stay safe and see you next time.